welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I am not a priest and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy who keeps checking his phone at a wedding reception for updates on a bishop election. It's true, I was there. I was almost as excited about this bishop election as you were. Every time I saw Brian stop and hunch over his phone, I would stop whatever I was doing and rush over. Yeah, a lot of people who have no connection to the Episcopal Church were more interested in this bishop election than you would expect. We got an entire Presbyterian wedding deeply involved in an Episcopal bishop election because Brian is that kind of friendly. <laughs> Speaking of, congratulations, Jim and Katie. Congrats, Jim and Katie. Also, congrats, Bonnie. Also, congrats, Bonnie, the person who was running in the bishop election. And who, one. And one is uh, my priest, Bonnie Perry. She is going to be the next bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Michigan. And I'm sure we are sad to see her leave Chicago. I'm very sad, but also very excited. She's awesome. She's going to be awesome for Michigan. Yeah, I met her once when I went to All Saints for the Labyrinth episode. And she was very nice and very welcoming of me, this sort of like perplexed and very out of place feeling heathen in her church. She was super sweet. So I'm really grateful that she exists and that she's going to get to lead a whole new swath of congregants. Yeah. And the wild thing is you could probably walk back into the church and she would still remember your name. Oh, I believe it. She seems like that kind of person. (laughs) I am not, but I'm working on it. (laughs) I have a really good eye for faces at least. Like I might not Mm -hmm. remember your name, but I can probably tell you like, where I met you and what was happening while it was happening. For sure. It made me really good working in restaurants. Where I'd be like, oh, you came in on that day where that happened and this is what you were drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I might have to, like, go back through the reservation book to figure out what your name was. But I will remember your face. I can sort of do that. Yeah. I don't know that I can do it to quite that extent. But, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> you're good for you. It's a good thing to work on. <laughs> well, today, I'm pretty sure we're not talking about bishop elections. Although, maybe we are. We're not talking about bishop elections, but we are talking about bishops. Great! <laughs> How thematically appropriate. Yeah. I was I was thinking through, I was like, oh, what's it going to be this week? Uh, bishops. Why sure. Not? Just like the concept of bishops? <laughs> yeah, like mostly about the, the origin of the role and what it was originally, and then a little bit of history... And then we're going to jump forward and we're going to talk about what different denominations say the role of a bishop is. I love that. Yeah, and because I, I mentioned off air earlier to Shannon that this was a big topic. So this is going to be even more glossing over things than we typically do. Correct. But it'll, it'll still be fun. Yeah, sometimes it's good to go big picture. Yeah, but we're not doing an extended like two, three part whatever on bishops. That's fine. (laughs) I think that our listeners will appreciate just one really solid episode on bishops. It's the correct amount of bishops. Yes. (laughs) I guess at some point I'm going to have to ask you how many bishops there are, but I think we should start wherever you want to start first. I I feel like you think that's a more straightforward question than that is. Oh, I know it's not. That's why I want (laughs) to ask it. Uh, um, I will ask, when the time comes, I will ask you some more specific questions about numbers of bishops. Great. (laughs) So... First off, the word bishop comes from the Greek episkopos, but this word, it gets translated also as like elder, pastor, leader. Sure. So just somebody in charge. Yeah. In the Bible, it's used pretty much interchangeably with the word presbyteros, 
which is the origin of the word presbyter. But also, we're talking about, that's also Episcopalian and Presbyterian. Yeah, and those They're are... They're all root words. My brain is just, like, wordsing right now. Yeah, and that's absolutely where we get... All those. Those from. Sure. This is free association wordplay with Shannon <laughs> right now. <laughs> Straight up. We're also... Again, not going to get into that because that's a whole other tangent. Well, yes. <laughs> okay, but so presbyter. I don't know if I know what a presbyter is. It's this one pretty much gets translated to elder. Okay, so a presbyter is just like another fancy word for a high person high up in a church structure. Yeah, and as we move forward in time, they develop into two different positions. Presbyter being closer to what you would think of as a priest as opposed to a bishop who is a higher level. Sure. Okay. The most full description of a bishop in the Bible comes from the first letter of Paul to Timothy. Cool. He says, The saying is sure, whoever aspires to the office of bishop desires a noble task. Now a bishop must be above reproach, married only once, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an apt teacher, not a drunkard, nor not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall to the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. Okay. So that's a lot of requirements, but none of them seem unreasonable. Yeah. Like, you just have to be, like, a good, straightforward person who runs a good shop and also has a humble relationship with God. Pretty much, yeah. If you're going to be a leader of a community, you should be respected by the community. Makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And right after this, Paul mentions the role of deacons, which is similar to bishops, but it's pretty clear in his writing that the bishops are the one in charge, especially of the administrative and financial parts of these communities. Sure. It's a little bit more responsibility to be a bishop than a deacon. Yeah. And then for like a modern sense, there's three levels because it would be bishop, priest, deacon. Okay, deacons are under priests. Yeah. I feel like the question I get asked by other lay people who are like more of the non-religious persuasion is people are very confused about what deacons are. We can... And I just keep telling... The best I've been able to tell people is it's like, they're not quite a priest and they can get married, but they also like do things in the church. (laughs) I mean, none of that is wrong. (laughs) like, for whatever reason, non-religious people are real confused by deacons. So, yeah, deacons can do some of the things that priests can do. Mm -hmm. And also, deacon is a step on the way to being a priest. Like, you can be, it's called a a transitional deacon. Okay. So you get ordained a deacon, and you function in that role for a while with the anticipation that you will then be ordained as a priest. Okay. That makes sense. But there are also permanent deacons who are just deacons and don't have a desire to do the full-time priest ministry. Yeah. And usually they have, like, other jobs. Like, I have an uncle who's a deacon. Mm -hmm. So they're more like priest as extracurricular activity. Sure. It's like people who priest for hobby. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Hobbyist priests. (laughs) It's it's people who, it's important to them that their ministry is out in the world as well. Sure. So you're less 
in a church. You also have a life. You're doing out things outside of the church. Not that priests don't have lives, but... But their lives are more <laughs> church-centric than a deacon is who might be connected to a community in another way than besides just their religious life. Correct. Because a deacon could be connected to people in their workplace, which mm-hmm. is not a thing that would be as common for priests, although there are some part-time priests. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, but we're not talking about deacons. We're, not we're two whole steps above deacons. We're we at bishops. Are. We are at bishops. But we're right now we're at Paul. Good friend Paul. Yes. Good buddy Paul. In Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, Paul is quoted as saying, Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. And then he also says, So again, we have leadership, but... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, that's not a, another quote. That's just my own notes. Cute. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that doesn't look like Paul. No. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> Brian. Book of Brian. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, the so leadership. Yes. That's basically what Paul is saying. He also talks about multiple leaders in the city of Ephesus. So, it's not how we think of bishops quite today, where... You have one bishop over multiple churches. Mm-hmm. They've got multiple bishops functioning in this one sure. church community. Peter also talks about the image of shepherds as connected to bishops. Okay, because they lead flocks. Yeah, and just, just like what Paul said in Acts, I exhort the elders among you to tend the flock of God that is in your charge, exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you do it. Also, they carry big sticks. That's... Why they carry big sticks, because... That's, that's all I could hope that to be true. They're I shepherds. was really hoping you would say that. <laughs> I was really hoping that the big sticks were because they were shepherds, and the shepherds also carry big sticks. But yeah, pretty much. You just made my day. Um, they're, the big sti- sticks are called croziers. Okay. I love it. Yeah. I love it so much. This is the thing that I love about religious history, is the moments where they're like, People don't have written language yet. Like, most people can't read, but we need people to understand this symbol. Like, how do we make this as straightforward for people as possible? And it's like, we make big, beautiful windows that show you the story. And we have our guys carry sticks like your shepherds carry sticks so they know what place they serve in this group. (laughs) I think it's brilliant. Oh, yeah. I love it. I love, I love symbolism. Yeah. (laughs) Love this. (laughs) So... We've got all of these shepherds wandering around. Yeah. Shepherds in with big sticks and funny hats. Yeah. Well, I mean, the... We'll get to the hat. I'm sure. I figured there's... It wouldn't be an episode of Sunday School for Heathens without a bit about the hat. Yeah. If there's a hat, I'm going to talk about the hat. For sure. But right now, we're just (laughs) thinking of them as, like, shepherds for their flocks. Their flocks being the sort of, like, greater religious community that they... Yeah. Shepherd. And so we have these leaders in the early church, but we are a little fuzzy on exactly how the structure of the leadership worked in these very early churches. So there are bishops, but how do you become a bishop? More like, how many are there? How do decisions get made? Even, are they really called bishops? Sure. So in Jesus' time, synagogues were governed by a college of presbyters or elders. Sure. So it's likely that early Christian churches just followed this model. Cool. Because, you know, early Christianity, offshoot of Judaism. exactly. Some other churches might have called the group of people governing them bishops, but this was thought to be more of a Gentile term. Okay. Um, And while presbyter was more of a Jewish term. Makes sense. 
Other communities might not have had the college of leaders. They would have just had one presbyter or one bishop. Mm -hmm. But whatever they were called, they were elected by popular vote. There you go. And some people think that in the earliest days, women were allowed to vote for the church leaders. Wild. Yeah. But this died out by, like, the third century. Of course. You know. Yeah. And after the people elected the leaders, they were ordained by existing bishops, passing down the the role. Mm Mm-hmm. The idea that you can trace this leadership back through the generations of leaders directly from someone else who was a leader who was had yeah. their hands laid on by someone else going all the way back yeah. to the apostles. Oh, wow. And the apostles were selected by Jesus. Mm-hmm. This is called apostolic succession. Ah, I feel like I've heard that word before. I think it's that phrase. Yeah. The Catholic Church believes in the unbroken line of apostolic succession. They also believe that the Orthodox church also has it okay um but they don't think anyone else is doing it okay so the catholics believe that them and the orthodox church are the only people who have held on to their apostolic succession correct now does that mean that like the bishop of the diocese of chicago like does he know which of the like 12 apostles he is of the lineage of i don't like does that mean that there's like secretly 12 (laughs) clubs no, that would be very cool. <laughs> he just knows that he he has been laid on hands by a guy who was laid on hands by, by a guy, by a guy, by a guy, by a guy who at one point was touched by an apostle who touched Jesus. Yes, that is the belief. Whether that is entirely accurate... Is not the point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I think it would be cooler if there was like secretly like a, a Paul club or no. Wouldn't be Paul. No, a Matthew club and a Luke club and a John club. And uh, whatever the guy with two names club. <laughs> you know. Sure. <laughs> they all they all have two I names. I feel like you were just going to keep waiting to see when I ran out of apostles. <laughs> I, good. I, cannot, I cannot name all 12 apostles. Maybe I, someday. I honestly am pretty sure I couldn't off the top of my head either. Maybe, no. I was going to say maybe between the two of us, but I don't think that's true. <laughs> I feel like I'd be the one doing most of the heavy lifting yeah. there. <laughs> you would let me get the first, like, easy four or five, and then you'd have to pick up the pieces. <laughs> so that's what the Catholics believe. The Anglicans, Methodists, and Lutherans claim apostolic succession to varying degrees in some parts. It's less uniform. Not even all branches of all of those have bishops. Great. So it varies. Sure. There are... Two theories about why the early churches moved from a governing body to a single head bishop. Okay. So the first theory is that in some Greek religious organizations, there was one person, and that person was in charge of finances, and they were the head of the church. Because money is important. Yes. So according to this theory, the one presbyter from the group of presbyters who was chosen to be in charge of finances was called a bishop. Great. And then eventually all those other sort of like council positions faded away and we were left just with this one guy who had the money and also already had the title. Either they faded away or they just developed into the different classes of cleric. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. The other theory is that beginning around the second century, leadership was consolidated to protect against heresies. (gasps) Heresies. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) 
It's always about heresies. It's always about heresies. Because in the second century, there were a lot of heresies rolling around. Things just got buck wild. So, like, probably <laughs> some church realized that, like, some, like, thing came down and someone realized that half of their council was now heretics. And they had to figure out what to do. And the answer was just let the one guy who wasn't a heretic left run the show. Yeah, and it's easier to control opinions of people if it's just one guy. That's true. <laughs> uh, as a as two people who once spent many late nights trying to uh, argue for how things went on the theater board we were on. Oh, God. You know. <laughs> I can just imagine if you were trying to run a whole church. Have we mentioned that on the show before? I don't know. Uh, Brian and I used to make art together. Now we make a podcast. <laughs> we were in a Shakespeare theater group. Yep. And, and a lot of people who were in that group listen to the show. They do. Shout out to L&M. You got it. <laughs> so those are the two theories for leadership. Either way, we know that bishops became distinct from presbyters at the beginning of the second century because of the writings of Ignatius of Antioch. Cool. In his letter to the Magnesians. Sure. He, I think that's, yeah. We'll take it. Good enough. <laughs> he writes... I exhort you to study to do all things with a divine harmony, while your bishop presides in the place of God, and your presbyters in the place of the assembly of apostles, along with your deacons, who are most dear to me, and are entrusted by, with the ministry of Jesus Christ. So, bishop, presbyter, deacon. All separate. I feel weird about the fact that the bishop is presiding in place of God. Yeah, that um, feels like a lot. But, you know, there's people who believe in Persona Christi. The, um... The, like, God is inhabiting whoever is leading at that moment? Basically, yeah. That's wild. And it's like, mm, I don't know that that's quite what's happening. Because isn't the whole bit now that the only one who, like, talks directly to God is the Pope? The, like, he's the one with the direct line? I don't think... I don't think that's how that works. Okay, I don't <laughs> I clearly don't know. Uh, anyway... Anyone can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Sure. Let me evangelize on you. <laughs> Brian's whole demeanor changed when he did that. He like put on character. His, he like put on his evangelist body for a minute there. Because it's just so unnatural for me as someone who was raised Catholic to say, let me tell you about my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Sure. <laughs> Okay, but it's like there's a difference, I think. I guess is that because there's a difference between having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and like I am the head of a thing and God thus must like guide me in how to lead his believers on earth. Yeah, I mean I, I think you could say that I don't know, I don't I don't wanna get too into like the weird stuff around papal infallibility. But there are certain situations in which a Pope can say something and everybody has to accept it's true. It's not sure. all the time. Yeah. That makes sense. But we feel more... But do you feel more comfortable, I guess, personally, with, like, the Pope being that person than this, like, the bishop is standing in for God thing? I don't like the idea of any one person being like, I'm the one who knows what God wants. Sure. I believe that. <laughs> that makes... That's sensible and reasonable. <laughs> I'm more comfortable with a college of... A college of presbyters, I think. Sure. <laughs> anyway. But the bishops have risen to the top here. Yeah, bishops are important. And then in another letter by Ignatius, he says, See that you all follow the bishop even as Jesus Christ does the Father, and the presbyty, presbyty, that's a tough word to say. That is a hard word to say. Presbytery. Sure. <laughs> Take it. Uh, as you would the apostles, and reverence the deacons as being the institution of God. Let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. Let that be 
deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or by one to whom he has entrusted it. Whenever the bishop shall appear, let there be multiple people, even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. It is not lawful without the bishop either to baptize or to celebrate a love feast. I think that means marriage. Sure. I'll take it. But I'm now calling all marriages love feasts. (laughs) But whatsoever he shall approve of, that is also pleasing to God, so that everything that is done may be secure and valid. So, again, the bishop is in charge. Listen to the bishop. Yeah. You can't do anything without the bishop. Cool. The bishop is allowed to pass on responsibilities to priests. Yeah. He's got the power. He can, you know. Yeah. What's the word I'm looking for? Delegate? Yes, thank you. There we go. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, he's got the power. He can delegate as he needs to. Yeah. I don't remember if we have talked about this before or if this is just a thing you already know, but the Pope is the Bishop of Rome. I guess I've heard that said before. And this is confusing because Rome didn't have an official single bishop until Anicetus in uh, 154 CE. Okay. So, (laughs) and honestly, it wasn't likely settled that the Pope was the Bishop of Rome until about 381 CE. Okay. And at that point, Rome was chosen as the seat of the Pope because it was the imperial capital and it didn't have anything to do directly with apostolic succession. Cool. So basically, like, they picked Rome first and then eventually it felt silly to have a bishop and the Pope both be in the same town, so they just let them become one job? Maybe. It's unclear. Or, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure exactly how it was decided, but the yeah, the, it was eventually decided that the Pope was the Bishop of Rome. Great. And in this early era of the church, mm-hmm. it was kind of similar to patriarchs in the Eastern Church. Okay. There's the Patriarch of Alexandria, Antioch, Constantinople, and then later Russia. Okay. And these were just other, like, important bishops of large mm-hmm. areas. Great. And the Orthodox Church has maintained this structure. That's still how it works. It's the, the Patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church is yeah. in charge of that. And though now you can be Russian Orthodox and not live in Russia, you can be yeah. Russian Orthodox and live in the United States. But are you still then under the purview of the Patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church? Yes. So the not not to like to try and draw a direct comparison, the Patriarch is a more of like a Pope figure than a bishop figure. That's the closest thing. Yeah. Like it doesn't seem directly like that, but like it's more of a like more of a oversees a greater community than, like, a geographic community. Yeah. But the different patriarchs aren't supposed to be better or worse than each other. They're just... Yeah. ...separate. Okay. But still, like, in conversation with each other. Cool. Do they, like, have a council or something? I... A convention? I'm sure they meet at different times. I don't know specifics of it. Sure. Because that's a little outside of my my wheelhouse. Yeah. Uh, Orthodox Church listeners among you, you know who you are. <laughs> Let us know. What kind of parties do the patriarchs have? Oh, boy. They might, they'd be very ornate, I would assume. They would have great hats. They'd have great hats. Such good hats. <laughs> <laughs> That's all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so patriarchs are sort of the Orthodox equivalent of a hierarchical structure, which we don't really have a, a version of in the non-Orthodox Catholic Church. Yeah, I mean, the... The Roman Catholic Church basically is consolidated under the Patriarch of Rome. Cool. Who is the is Pope. also the Pope. Yeah. Cool. And speaking of Rome, 
Now we're getting to the time when Christianity comes out of the shadows and becomes the official state religion. Thank you, Constantine. And this is the time when we start getting fancy ornamentation, like bishops are wearing rings. We got it to hats! We made it all the way to hats! We have maybe made it to hats. Some people say hats happened this early. The hat is called a mitre. Okay, we're working in the direction of hats. Yeah. But we start with rings. You said rings? Yeah, they have rings. The ring is a symbol that you're wedded to your diocese. Cute. Yeah. And they've got thrones because they're very fancy. Yes. Fancy chairs are very important. Yeah. And the, so mitre, maybe at this time, maybe as late as the 10th century. Okay. That's the, a wide range of times when we might have gotten hats. It is. So the people who think it wasn't until the 10th century think that there was an alternate hat that they wore before. Okay, but mitres might not, specifically might have not happened until the 10th century. They were probably wearing some kind of hat. Sure. Except when you pray. You gotta take the hat off. When you pray. Everyone takes the hats off. uh, Men take the hats off. Women are allowed to wear the hats. Okay. So so says Paul. So says Paul. (laughs) Any hats? What do you mean? Like, like, what kind of hat are you trying to wear? <laughs> I don't know. Like, if I if I rolled in in, like, a pillbox hat with a birdcage veil, it, still, it gets to stay on even during prayer? Yes. If you ask some people, you're in fact supposed to. Is it that, like, a weird hair-covering modesty issue? Yeah, it's basically... So the the weird thing, it's in, um, it's in 1 Corinthians. It's men should keep their heads uncovered because they're made in the image of God. You don't want to cover up the image of God. Women are made in the image of men, and men are sinful, so women should keep their heads covered. Oh, <laughs> Is it like a physical reaction to that? See, you know how I always talk about, mm, there's going to come a time when you're not going to like Paul. I mean, we did a whole thing about why I'm not going to like Paul. Megan, like, schooled me on Paul. <laughs> but that's one of the things about sure. Paul. <laughs> yes. I understand that Paul is not super great. So anyway, the, the bishop... I'm now going to start wearing elaborate hats. If you, if I, when I eventually come to church with you, I'm going to have to buy an elaborate hat to wear. That's fine. People will ask if you're, if you're like Anglican, like from England. That's going to happen more there. Great. <laughs> fine by me. <laughs> See, I was sort of hoping that the reason the women got to keep their hats on is because elaborate hats are like a pain in the ass to take on and off. But I realized that like Paul didn't live in a time when elaborate hats were a thing. No, it's. Paul being a jerk. Paul is just a misogynist. <laughs> so the bishop has to take off the hat when he prays, mm-hmm. and he hands it to a dedicated altar server whose job is just to hold the hat. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> For the entire time. <laughs> All right. But, like, now that there are female bishops, do female bishops get to keep the hats on? No. As far as I know, female bishops take off the hats. Great. <laughs> that makes more sense. The mitre shall not be worn during prayer. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, my favorite thing is just like, like a, a 12-year-old just like holding this hat. <laughs> I don't know what else to do. Here I am. <laughs> my job is to hold this hat now. <laughs> I guess I'm here. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> so this is also the period of time when the bishops get their shepherd hooks. Cool. Oh, they didn't have sticks before? No, the, the shepherd hooks came a little bit later. Cool. They might have had, like, some kind of stick, but it was definitely not. Like, this is when we get fancy sticks. Fancy sticks. Great. <laughs> fancy sticks. Big hats. It's the 10th century. Things are going wild. Oh, yeah. Well, sometime between the 5th and 10th century. Sure. There's... 
<laughs> there are 500 years for us to get fancy. Yeah, we. I think we progressively get more fancy through yeah. the, the five centuries. It took us 500 years to get to peak fancy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, jumping back to the 5th century. Okay. When the Roman Empire fell, the bishops basically became the political leadership. Oh, okay. Because secular leadership... Didn't exist. Was gone. It was a failed state otherwise. Yeah. And... Because of this, they even more grew in power, which is, again, mm-hmm. part of why we're getting fancier all the time. Yep. Symbolism, and, symbolism, symbolism. Mm-hmm. And because it is such a powerful role now, they started limiting who could vote for them. Ah, yes. So already, women are not allowed to vote anymore. But now we're... I blame Paul. <laughs> Paul was dead, but, like, long before. But he probably would have been happy that women couldn't vote for bishops. It depends on which letter you read, because there's another one where he says there is no more woman and man, we're all one in Christ. Okay. So Paul's, Paul contains multitudes. Yes. <laughs> so. That's a shirt. <laughs> Paul, he contains multitudes. So we're limiting who can vote. Yeah. It's increasingly getting limited to only wealthy and powerful people. Yes. By about the 6th century, there were technically elections, but it was mostly just kings appointing bishops. In the Eastern Church, it was both better and worse. Lay people couldn't vote at all, but a collection of clerics and nobility did. So you still had a body of people voting, but none of them were lay people. Okay. But now I'm sure bishops are getting more and more elite, and there's more nepotism, and blah 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 blah. Yes. This problem of kings appointing rulers came to a head in the 11th century. How many kings appointed their younger brothers to become bishops? Oh, I'm sure a lot. There was even, there's even stories of people who were not already priests just being directly appointed bishop. Oh, that's too much. <laughs> too much. <laughs> yeah, not, not. The not training a good time. period on that is long. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we have some bad, we have some bad time in there. <laughs> and so, 11th century, we get the. War of investitures, investiture being the word for a king appointing a bishop. Okay. This ended with the Concordat of Worms in 1122. Worms of the Y? No. Oh, it's not W-Y-R-M-S. No, it's just, it's It's spelled like the animal. Okay. (laughs) Are they animals? Worms? Yeah. Yes. What do you think they are? Insects. Insects are animals. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I... There was a girl in high school one time who was trying to convince me that ducks were not animals, and she meant mammals. <laughs> I at least was not there. Maybe think of that. She was okay. going. She was going to vet school, and I was concerned. Yeah, that feels wrong. <laughs> okay, so that's that was the most decide decide I think we've ever had in the yeah, show. Yeah, that was a big tangent. <laughs> okay, but the Council of Worms does something. We end investiture. Great. So less influence by secular rulers. I mean, it still happened, but we officially have said, no, it's not going to happen. And we also increase the power of the Pope to be the one who approves bishops. Oh, great. So you get elected bishop, but then you have to be approved by the Pope in the Catholic Church? We'll get to modern in a second. Great. Great. Moving too fast. Yeah. Where are we? We are now in 1485. Got it. In 1485, Pope Innocent removed any mention of election from the ordination process. Ah. 
now it's just all popes all the time for him? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And going forward, it actually, th- this is what I was getting to. Oh, cool. I had one sentence that I needed to get. <laughs> great, great. <laughs> yeah, in the Catholic Church, there's not an election of bishops. The bishops in the area where there's a vacancy nominate priests who they think would be good bishops. Okay. And those nominations are given to the nuncio, who is a representative of the Pope. Yes. And the nuncio takes those recommendations to the Pope, and the Pope gets final say. Cool. See, nuncios I just think of happening during, like, the reign of Henry VIII and, like, the separation from the Catholic Church. And so in my mind, they're all just, like, mustache-twirling Spaniards who, like, have the interests of Catherine of Aragon in mind. (laughs) Yes, you're correct. Every one of them is that. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) They all have strong feelings about Catherine of Aragon. (laughs) I don't don't know what to say. Brian. Great. That's, yep. That is every nuncio. (laughs) Yes. You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) So that's That's how how bishops get elected in the Catholic Church. Yes. That's in the the Roman Catholic Church. That's how we get bishops. Got it. But anyway, we are about to hit the Reformation. Yay. Yay. And we break off in several different directions. Many directions. Luther believed that the Catholic leadership was corrupt. And that people should go back to picking the bishops themselves. Cool. But he didn't, like, abolish bishops. No. He mostly just thought that all of the current bishops were bad unless they agreed with him. (laughs) That sounds like everything I know about Luther. (laughs) (laughs) That checks out. (laughs) And then Calvin thought that bishops were just completely unnecessary. Great. Didn't need all of this church hierarchy. Cool. That sounds like everything I know about Calvin. Yeah. And Henry VIII decided to appoint bishops himself. Yes. <laughs> that sounds like everything I know about Henry VIII. <laughs> yeah, all of this tracks. Yeah. And so based on the split, these three attitudes kind of propagate forward, and that's how we get who has bishops today and who doesn't. Great. So Lutherans, bishops. Yeah, well, some. Some. Okay. Like, the ELCA... The Evangelical Lutheran Church of America has bishops. Cool. I don't think the Missouri Synod has bishops. Yes. So it depends. Different Lutherans. And the United Methodist Church does have bishops. Okay. Anglicans, the whole Anglican communion has has bishops. Mm -hmm. And some Protestants don't have bishops. Presbyterians don't have bishops. Okay. The United Church of Christ doesn't do bishops. It depends. Yeah. And yeah, within some of these larger mainline Protestant denominations, there are various branches who do or do not have bishops. So it sort of varies. Yeah. I thought it'd be cool to cap things off with what the modern role of a bishop is in some different denominations. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So first, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it says this, The individual bishops are the visible source and foundation of unity in their own particular churches. As such, they exercise their pastoral office over the portion of the people of God assigned to them, assisted by priests and deacons. But as a member of the Episcopal College, each bishop shares in the concern for all of the churches. The bishops exercise this care first by ruling well their own churches as portions of the universal church, and so contributing to the welfare of the whole mystical body, which from another point of view is the corporate body of churches. They extend it especially to the poor, to those persecuted for the faith, as well as to missionaries who are working throughout the world. 
So that's bishops. And then their main duties, it says the teaching office to preach the gospel of God to all men in keeping with the Lord's command, the sanctifying office, especially in the Eucharist, which he offers personally or whose offering he assures through his priest, his co-workers. Yep. The governing office, the bishops as vicars in legates of Christ govern the particular churches assigned to them by their councils, exhortations, and examples, but over and above that also by the authority and sacred power, which indeed they ought to exercise as to edify in the spirit of service that which is that of their master. The well, catechism is wordy. Yeah. <laughs> Succinctness. Yeah. Not their strong suit. But so in, in general, they take teaching, sanctifying, governing. Cool. Yeah. It's a little bit of guidance. It's a little bit of admin. Yeah. Which a lot of that is remarkably similar to early letter that we have. Yeah, from for sure. Of like Ignatius. what makes a good bishop. Mm-hmm. All You need all of the things mentioned in that letter to do the things that are listed in that catechism. Yeah. In, in Paul's letters, yeah. Yeah. So, Anglican, from the Book of Common Prayer. Mm-hmm. This is much shorter. I summarized and did not include everything from the, the catechism. This right. is Bless the, you. This is the entirety of what the catechism in the Book of Common Prayer says about bishops. Hit me. The ministry of a bishop is to represent Christ and his church, particularly as apostle, chief priest, and pastor of a diocese, to guard the faith, unity, and discipline of the whole church, to proclaim the word of God, to act in Christ's name for the reconciliation of the world and the building up of the church, and to ordain others to continue Christ's ministry. So succinct. Right? So simple. <laughs> Very similar, though. Yeah. According to the Orthodox Church in America, of maintaining the unity of the church throughout the world by ensuring the truth and unity of the faith and the practice of their respective churches with all the others. Thus, the bishops represent their particular churches or dioceses to the other churches or dioceses, just as they represent the universal church to their own particular priests, deacons, and people. Also, uh, no bishop in orthodoxy is considered infallible. That's great. Yeah. None has any powers over or apart from his priests, deacons, and people, or the other bishops. All are servants of Christ and the church. Great. That was just... Very uniquely humble for all of these descriptions. <laughs> I wonder if they had an issue. Well, I think it's probably in reference to the Pope. Sure. The Pope being better than all of the other bishops, even though it's not a, technically a separate thing in terms of ordination. Yeah. So it's like the the patriarchs aren't super ordained. Yeah. I, I mean, that makes sense. Probably. Awesome. And then the last one I have is from the Book of Discipline, which is the United Methodist Church. Cool. Bishops are elected from the elders and set apart for a ministry of servant leadership, general oversight, and supervision. As followers of Jesus Christ, bishops are authorized to guard the faith, order, liturgy, doctrine, and discipline of the church. The role and calling forth of the bishop is to exercise oversight and support of the church in its mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The basis of such discipleship of leadership lies in discipline and a disciplined life. The bishop leads, therefore, through the following disciplines, a vital and renewing spirit, an inquiring mind and a commitment to the teaching office, a vision for the church, a prophetic commitment for the transformation of the church and the world, a passion for the unity of the church, the ministry of administration. The ministry of administration is totally a time twister. <laughs> I was just like that one because it's like a faith, 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 admin. Yeah. <laughs> a little, little bit of guidance, a little bit of admin. <laughs> and... Fun note, the first woman to become bishop in the Anglican Communion was Barbara Harris in 1989. Oh, nice. Yeah. Where was she bishop? Massachusetts. Cool. 
like that a lot. That's yeah. great. Now, in the United States, at least, mm-hmm. we'll use the Anglican Church as an example because you are most familiar with the bishops of the Episcopalians of the United States now. Is there one bishop per state? There's one bishop per diocese, which is not mapped specifically on two states. Okay. But some of them are whole states and some of them are like parts of multiple states? Yeah. Like there's the one that we are we're currently in the Chicago diocese. Oh, so Chicago is its own diocese. And it like it's it expands into surrounding area, but, but it's not like all of There's Illinois. a second diocese in the state. Okay. But Bonnie is going to the Michigan diocese, which is its own Yeah. So it it depends. Interesting. And is the map of diocese in the Episcopalian Church similar to the map of the Catholic Church? Like, did they use similar borders? There are more dioceses in the Catholic Church because it's larger. Okay, that makes sense. And also, Catholic churches will have auxiliary bishops in large areas. Like, we're in Chicago, there's the archbishop, mm-hmm. and then there are other Yeah, we didn't bishops. even get to archbishops. Archbishop is just a bishop of a large metropolitan area. Okay, they just get fancier hats. It's same hat. Then let's take a break and we'll come back for some fun. Sounds good. And we're back. And now it's time for the patronage pop quiz, where I tell Shannon about a saint and she has to guess what they're the patron of. All right, who do you have for me this week, Brian? Are they a bishop? Yes, in fact. I was hoping so. Uh, Saint Blaze. Ooh, what a fun name. And actually the current Archbishop of... Chicago, the the Catholic Archbishop, is Blaise Supich. Interesting. Named after the saint, presumably? Probably. That's cool. Alright, well tell me about Saint Blaise. Blaise was born in the 3rd century in Armenia. Okay. He worked as a doctor, but eventually decided to become a physician of souls. Ooh, that is a fancy title. Yeah. I don't know what that means, but I like it. I think it was a metaphor. He became a priest. Okay. (laughs) That's less fun. (laughs) All priests should now refer to themselves as physicians of souls. They could. It's cool. I'm into it. (laughs) Some people get doctorates in ministry. Sure. So he was ordained a priest, and he later became the bishop of Sebast. And he moved into a cave. Oh my gosh, so many caves. (laughs) He moved into a cave so that he would be able to spend more time in prayer. But he's a bishop. He has so many things he must do. He's an early bishop. Okay, I still think that, like, if you're going to be a bishop, you can't also be the kind of guy who wants to live in a cave. He made it work. Sure. (laughs) Okay, he did well enough that they made him a saint. Yeah, and, you know, people wanted to see him bad enough that they came to the cave. Great. Because Blaze would heal them. Okay. That is usually the kind of thing you do that makes you a saint? Yeah. Wild animals would also come visit the cave to be healed, but they would wait until he finished praying. That's adorable. Yeah, so there was just, like, this crowd of animals outside his cave. How Snow White of him. (laughs) In 316, the governor of Cappadocia, his name is uh, Agricola, came to Sebast to persecute Christians. Great. He and his men were out in the woods searching for wild animals to stock the arena for executions. Okay. They're like, they need to stock up for, you know, blood sports. Yeah, basically. They happened to stumble upon a lot of animals. So many. (laughs) So many. Standing here outside this cave. (laughs) (laughs) What's with this cave? It was Blaze's cave. Surprise. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm so shocked. 
And these men, they arrested Blaze for being a Christian. Like you do. And they took him into prison. Okay. On the way to prison, they came across an old woman who told Blaze that her pig had been stolen by a wolf. Aw. Blaze ordered the wolf to bring back the pig. And to everyone's amazement, it it did. did. And the pig was fine. That's wild. (laughs) (laughs) Once they got to jail, Blaze became well known for healing his fellow prisoners, including a young boy who was choking on a fishbone. He saved him. Great. And the the governor was so amazed by Blaze's healing powers that he tried to get him to renounce his faith and get him on his side. But Blaze refused. It doesn't, this guy clearly doesn't realize that the faith is what's making all this work. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so the governor ordered him to be thrown in a lake to drown. Okay. But they threw him in the lake and he began walking on the water. <gasps> Amazing. <laughs> is this the first water walking? No, because Jesus walked on Yeah, water. Jesus did it. Okay. <laughs> so Blaze invited his persecutors to walk on the water with him to prove the power of their gods. They tried, but it sank and drowned. Yes! <laughs> Living well is the best revenge! <laughs> this enraged the governor. So when Blaze came back to shore, he ordered him to be beaten. The men beat him with sticks, and they tore at his flesh with wool combs, which are like metal combs. Yeah, for that doesn't rich, sound fun. Yeah, and finally they beheaded him. Yep. That is the story of Blaze. What is Blaze the patron saint of? It's got to be some sort of woodland creature, animal, animal handling, farmers, shepherds situation. Um, what, do, do you have a, a specific one of those that you want to go with? Um, is there a, like, a animal handlers or, like, a animal pet owners? There's animals. Sure. <laughs> There's also... Swine herds. Okay, yeah, there we go. <laughs> and cow herds. I don't know that you would have said... <laughs> I would have said shepherds, probably. Right. Which, but I don't think he's he's actually not the patron saint of shepherds. weirdly is not on here. <laughs> Weird. Because everyone is the patron saint of shepherds. Bishops. All the bishops. Well, he was a bishop. I know. So he has a very long list. Cool. His list is against angina... Against bladder diseases, against blisters, against coughs, against dermatitis, against dropsy, against eczema, against fever, against goiters, against headaches, against respiratory diseases, against skin diseases, against snake bites, against sore throats. Is this one of everything he cured someone of, probably? Probably. (laughs) Uh, Against stomach pain, against storms, against teething pain, against throat diseases, against toothaches, against ulcers, against whooping cough, against wild beasts... For angina sufferers, for animals, cattle, children, healthy throats, motorists, pack horses, pets, pigs, bakers, bricklayers, builders, carvers, cobblers, construction workers, cowherds, farm workers, hat makers, hatters, millers, musicians who play wind instruments, okay, plasterers, shoemakers, sock makers, stocking makers, stone cutters, stone masons, swineherds, tailors, tanners, veterinarians. Wool combers and wool weavers. That's like 40 things. I think I counted. He has so many. I should have guessed veterinarians. That was the easy one. Yeah, that would have been a good one. And then there's a lot of throat things because... Because of the fishbone choking? And like there's a blessing that you can do for Blaze's feast day where you like take two candles and you like cross them and put them on somebody's throat. And I hate it. 
Okay. <laughs> I've had it done uh, when I was in Catholic school, and I hate when people touch my throat. Or are you one of those people who doesn't like to have your neck touched? I do not. Back of neck is fine. Okay. Front of neck is not. Got it. <laughs> Noted. So, I don't know. If you're not very upset by having your throat touched, go get it blessed. Sure. I guess. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> I love it, but it's wild. <laughs> Well, thank you all so much for listening this week. If you guys are enjoying the show, go on wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. It's the best way for people to find the show. And if you write a five-star review, I will shout you out on Twitter. Deal? Ooh. It's a big one. Stepping it up. Yeah. If you want to reach out to us directly, you can send us an email at sundayschoolforheathens at gmail.com. If you want to see those five-star shout-outs, follow us on Twitter at school number four heathens. We also have a Facebook page at school number four heathens. Thank you so much to Adam Griffin for his music in our show. Check him out at alteringgravity.wordpress.com. Thank you so much to David Griffin for his logo and editing the show. He was also a member of the same theater group that Brian and I were in in college. So he's a member of that illustrious crew. And I think that's it. Amen. Amen. Go in peace to like and share the pod. (laughs) 